American United Federal Credit Union can often help when others won't. They can often approve loans even if you've had trouble being approved in the past. Qualifying for membership is easy. Learn more at amucu.org. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Lieutenant Mark Evans from LAPD. He's the officer in charge of the Operations Valley Bureau for Human Trafficking Task Force. People, as they talk to you, they're trying to find out if you are a cop. You're trying to prove you're not a cop or get them to you know, think it's impossible you could be a cop. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Um, Mark, we, we left off, we were talking about human relations and relating to people and creating loyalty. Um, I'm interested, you know, as you've had different businesses, can you talk about how you feel like those skills apply in landing clients? Like sales is something that can become manipulative. Um, and I think that's why it has such a bad taste in so many people's mouths. Um, but a business doesn't exist without clients. Can you talk about maybe any of your approach to working with humans when it comes to landing a new client? You know what? I just think, um, one, you have to have, you have to believe in your service, right? Whatever that is, you, you know, you believe in the new car you're selling or the service you're providing, the, the mortgage you're going to provide. Um, and I think, too, I, I just try to be genuine in my efforts to, to help the individual um, accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish. Um, and so, you know, the industry I'm dealing with, I'm not really or in industries I've dealt with in the past, I'm not really going out and talking people into buying something. They've contacted me because they have a service that they that they were looking for, and um, but I I found that I've developed a lot of loyalty among those people because one I try to give them a fair deal, um, I try to educate them along the way, and I try to you know take care of them and help them avoid some pitfalls that could be avoidable, and you know back in if I'm talking about a mortgage company, you know I I could have taken advantage of so many people, um, but. I just set my margins a little lower and, and as a result, I had people who were loyal and they came back to me repeatedly because they trusted me. And I think that that trust and genuine concern about other people is very valuable and goes a long ways in any company. Well, I mean, there's obviously the moral implications of something like that. Um, and being able to live with yourself and sleep at night. 
But there's also just like the good business implications of that type of long-term thinking. And um, there's something pretty magnetic about somebody who has my interests at heart. You know, when somebody, when you don't know something and the, the service person or the salesperson says, oh, by the way, did you realize this? Like, this is going to be a way better deal for you if you do that. Yeah. And, it, and it's a worse deal financially for the person telling you. I mean, how easy is it to trust someone like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, listen, talking about police work, um, you know, obviously you've been a, a big advisor to us at Child Rescue ever since the start. Um, when it comes to something like undercover operations, um, you know, especially for people in law enforcement where honesty and making the right choice is such a high priority, um, talk about gaining that skill set and, and maybe where, what a struggle is or, or how you can tell a guy that's going to become a good undercover officer on your team versus somebody who may not make the cut? Well, you know, um, interesting thing is when you work undercover, your protection is your ability to talk and to basically dance when you're in a, in a tough situation. And whenever you're operating, when you're working undercover capacity, you're constantly thinking of the next, um, I'm saying a lie. I'm thinking of the next story that I'm going to say to navigate my way out of a given situation, right? Because people, as they talk to you, they're trying to find out if you are a cop, you're trying to prove you're not a cop or get them to, you know, think it's impossible. You could be a cop. And so you're constantly thinking and, you know, you're lying to a criminal, uh, which is, you know, when you're undercover, that's, that's legal. Uh, we don't lie in day-to-day operations, but, um, but that's just really critical in your ability to be an effective operator. You have to be a smooth talker. I found in my career that to be really good, you need to, you need to use partial truths because you could talk about them so naturally and they just come to you off the tip of your head because they're a large part of your own life. No, I remember that. I remember one day you showed me some fake ID that was actual real ID issued by the DMV and the city it said you lived in was a city that you didn't live in, but that you knew really well. And you were explaining to me like, Hey, if somebody says, you know, do you know where the the Chevron station is on such and such? <laughs> like you need, like, it's a big advantage to be able to say, yeah, or no, there's no Chevron in that corner. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's all kinds of backstories that you need to have in place. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, you, in an undercover world, you might not have a gun on you. You don't have these luxuries that an officer in a uniform and a bulletproof vest and a gun belt and all that has. And you have to be quick witted. You have to think on your feet. Well, you have to, you have to be convincing and it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. But to me, that's really what all the fun was, you know, in working undercover. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to go out there and say that I think you might've had more fun than some other people I'm thinking about <laughs> that episode of cops with the, with the cardboard boxes. Oh yeah, yeah. Can you can you tell everybody about that episode for a second? Well, there was a. This is way back when, but um, we had a guy in the unit who was really kind of a savvy guy, and he was real creative. And so he created a a box. It it was it looked like a bunch of boxes that were taped together, but there was an opening in the back, and you could sit in there, and the boxes would fit over you as you sat in the car. And then um, he would go and pick up someone who's engaged in prostitution. They'd be in the front seat and you'd be right behind him in these boxes. And then you would 
be able to take the boxes off and, and then affect the arrest. And people would always be, you know, shocked, uh, shocked that that could happen, but you could never do anything like that nowadays. That was, uh, way back in the nineties when you had a lot more discretion and now there's a lot of policies that would prevent those types of things, and rightfully so. And for safety reasons, you know, you can see why they would implement that type of policy. Um, well, I, I remember, I remember back in those days, things like, um, well, you think about whether you're in entrepreneurship or police work or whatever you're doing. You know, we all have these sayings like, "You shouldn't judge a book by its cover," and yet. The whole reason we have that saying is because we're constantly judging books by their cover. You know what I mean? Like right. the way someone dresses, the the way they choose to style their hair, a lot of times it's signaling to the rest of us, hey, what group do you identify with? How do you define yourself a lot? Is you know, a lot of people's personal grooming choices or their style of clothing or things like this, right? And in entrepreneurship, like you can really tell of like somebody who's trying to play at a higher level and they show up to an event and um whether it's something they're wearing or, you know, visible, visible neck tattoos or things like this that give all sorts of other people the thought of, you know, hey, this person may not be familiar with how this, how this particular game is played as well. Um, and it, it's, it can be a barrier for them to, to break into a community or things like this. Um, so specifically with undercover work, I'm just thinking about like, I remember hanging out and you're like, hey, are my, are my sideburns match? You know, my sideburns even? Because you had like these huge sideburns and like a goatee that was braided. <laughs> and um, talk about looking the part for, for your work. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, in that case, you know, I had to look the part in the sense that I didn't want anyone to even be able to conceive I could possibly be an officer. And I remember being on multiple crime scenes where I had to let my identity be known. You know, I was a supervisor and I walked up and, you know, I had a hat and crazy bushy hair and a nasty goatee and I probably smelled just as bad as I looked. And, um, and, you know, I pulled my badge out and I had it out. So when I was at the crime scene, you know, people, other officers who may not know me would at least know I'm supposed to be there. But when I pulled it out and the bystanders and witnesses saw it, they were, they were talking, you know, oh my gosh, I, that guy's a cop. I can't believe that. Are you really a cop? They asked me and I'm like, yeah, I, I am. And that was, you know, to me, that was like one of the most flattering things you could possibly <laughs> have because, um, you know, I, I wanted to convey it's impossible I could ever be a cop. Conversely, on the other side of the coin, you know, in, in another type of world, you don't want to, you don't want to portray that at all. You want to, well, my opinion is you want to have an appearance that's conducive to where people want to approach you. If I looked like that and I was trying to sell something, people, there, people would have ran for me. I would have never been successful. Mm -hmm. And, and some, some might say, well, that's not fair. They're judging a book by its cover. Well, that's true. They're judging a book by its cover and your livelihood depends on that. So you may want to change the cover. My yeah. opinion. Yeah. Uh, fairness in the real world. Um, my experience haven't, haven't matched up nearly so often as would be nice. Right. Yeah. You know, I have a, uh, a very a close acquaintance and um, he's a younger guy, uh, friends with my son. And, you know, he's got tattoos and he's got um, other things that are obvious to people. And he feels that he doesn't get a fair shake when he applies for jobs and things like that. And whether that's true or not, which it may very well be true, 
But the reality is everything we do, we need to take accountability for. So if we're doing things that inhibit us from being successful, why would we not change that? You know, but some people, some people want to change society's perception, which takes decades and decades or maybe a lifetime if it can be done at all when, you know, a haircut might be just as effective. Yeah. Again, depending what, what community you're looking to join, right. Or to be accepted. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in my case, in my case, I was on the opposite side of the coin. I mean, I wanted to look as bad as possible. Yeah. And people tell my wife, was not going to help you, huh? Yeah. And people would tell my wife, your husband looks horrible. And that was just like the best, that was the best <laughs> I remember, possibly get. I remember you telling me, dude, the ultimate Jess is if I can get other cops to pull me over because they think I look suspicious. Yeah, that happens. That's happened to me many times. That's that's awesome. Um, well, listen, uh, specifically on the trafficking side, um, you know, you've been you've been around as the the language has changed and the rules have changed and the laws have changed. Um, you, you've obviously written a book. Uh, and let's talk about that for a second. Tell us the name of your book and, and what was that process like to write a book? Um, the book's called Selling the Daughters of America. And the process, man, that was a lot of work. And it, uh, I, I had a friend of mine who was a consultant and he, he recommended I write a book and it would help me, you know? And I'm like, ah, who would read my book? But I guess my ADD took over once again and I decided to write a book, which is really ironic because I absolutely hate to read. But I wrote a book, you know, and I had to read this book many, many times because you wanted to be perfect, right? And so, uh, you know, again, I, I wrote the book based on the knowledge and experience I have about human trafficking, and I wrote it to educate the general public about, um, you know, the the dynamics of human trafficking and how your kids are getting recruited and how just a, a regular small town girl could get sucked into this type of lifestyle. And so I wrote that book, and um, and then what was interesting is my uh, my acquaintance told me you know, you write the book because it will help you in your consulting work. And so about two and a half, three years, two and a half years later, sure enough, um, people found out I wrote this book. And then that led to some other governmental contracts that, uh, that I've been pursuing and able to lock down to provide training to a bunch of other, um, you know, a bunch of law enforcement throughout the country. So it's been, it's been good, but it was very challenging. And and what did your schedule look like? Were you a write every morning at 6 a.m. kind of guy? Was it a weekend warrior thing? What what did your schedule of writing look like? Um, anyone that knows me knows I'm all in. When it, when I get my mind focused on something, it's all in. Now, it took me it took me about 9 well, it probably took me 4 months to write the book, and then the editing process took much longer, but it took me about probably 10 months to finish the whole, uh, finish the book and actually publish it. And I don't, I can't say, you know, I wrote uh, every morning from three to, you know, four or whatever, but I wrote every chance I was available, I would sit down and I would focus on that. And that was a priority until I got it done. So um, just, you know, every, every spare chance I had was when I was working on it. Yeah. I like hearing different people's routines. I feel like, you know, the, you know, there's not just one way to do it. And I think by hearing the way, you know, cause we've had a number of authors on hearing the different ways people have scheduled it and the way they've attacked it, I think gives people permission to realize however gets it done is okay. Um, so I like hearing that. Um, yeah. 
I think, you know, the end result is do it. It's like the Nike saying, just do it. And it doesn't matter how you do it, just do it. And so often people, and this drives me crazy, is people talk and talk and talk about doing stuff, but they don't ever do it. I would much rather try and do something and completely fail than have this perfect dream and never try. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, whole advice about apply seat of pants to seat of chair goes yeah. a long ways, right? Um, yeah. Well, listen, you know, and I know you've gone on to train at universities and, and even in other countries you've done training and, and coming up here and training the 285 FBI agents and police officers and parole officers at the child rescue event and this stuff. So you've done it yourself. You've written about it. You've taught about it. Now you're, you know, now you run an entire task force on this. Um, kind of back to the earlier question about knowing who's going to be good at this kind of undercover work and who you want working for you and who's actually going to be a good talker in these undercover situations. How do you, how do you identify that? And then how do you help your guys build that skill set? Um, well, identifying it, you know, everybody, I, I look for people who have passion. I want people who are passionate with what they do. Now, I have found, and this is just a general rule, is not, you know, a specific thing, but in general, there's young, hungry people who want to work. And there's other people who are a little, little more tenure on an assignment, and they're a little more set in their ways. So you got to be very cognizant of those factors. And then you then the next thing is once you find the hungry people that really want to work, then you you put them in scenarios that help them get experience and exposure. And a lot of that is really stretching people and, and helping them grow. And they might say, you know, man, my boss is really a taskmaster. He's, he's never satisfied with anything. Well, I try to compliment them a lot and let them know that I'm very satisfied with their work, but I, I don't ever want them to get so comfortable that they don't want to change. I want them to always look at a scenario, always think of, how can I do this better? We bring the team together often. We debrief situations and and look at the lessons we've learned so that we we work better and better each time. But you know, you want it's really driven, in my opinion, by passion for the assignment. And so walking that balance between having them be complimented enough uh, and, and recognize the things you're proud of them for um, versus you know spotting the opportunities for improvement. Do you have like an internal gauge or any kind of rule of thumb as you, as you're trying to recognize who needs more encouragement versus who needs more prodding? Well, you know, what's interesting. Uh, we just had this conversation um, the other day, but you know, everybody needs to be complimented and recognized. You know, some people are, are better than others and some people are more in the limelight than others. And then there are some people who, who are highly, highly productive, but they're kind of behind the scenes and they're not, they're not just up front, you know, in, in the limelight. And, and so it just seems like there's a, it's important to recognize everybody and let everybody know that their role in the, in the job at hand is, um, is valued. And a lot of times we might recognize the one person who's the biggest go-getter, but there's other people behind the scenes who want to be, complimented as well and so don't don't let your compliments don't go too long without complimenting your people and that'll go you a long ways for you yeah i was watching this youtube video of richard branson the other day he was talking about what a big role in leadership that um praising people and listening to people is 
um, and how helpful it can be to like them making the right choices and bringing their A game when you're not around, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is too is when 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 they know that they're valued, they will do everything for you. I had a boss. Um, she was just the best thing ever. I worked for her when I was very, very new on the job and I promoted through the years and, you know, she's since retired, but there was a, there was a lady, um, her name was Jerry Weinstein and Jerry was just a great leader to me, a great mentor. She did all the things that I hope to do in my career. And this is a lady, like I would walk to China on, you know, barefoot for her and roll back on glass because I, respected her so much. And I think as you develop those types of leadership skills, your people will have, you know, the same feelings for you because they know you have their best interests at heart. You care about their families. You want them to have quality of life. You want them to be successful. And conversely, they go over the top and perform for you. And so that's just something I've seen in the years. What's an example or what's a story of uh, like, like how would you describe her leadership that that you know created that kind of an effect on you man i i don't know i i think she was just she was genuine she was matter of fact she didn't really beat around the bush on things you know um sometimes if you're doing something wrong she would call you on it so but she was complimentary and she would also she wanted to be a good mentor to people mm. and and what was really crazy about that is when someone's a mentor to you and they're very influential in your life and in your career and they help you advance and promote, but they're your boss, right? So I'm a training officer and I become a sergeant, but she was a lieutenant and became a captain and I became a lieutenant and she became a commander. I can never really repay her because I'm not in a position to help her. Mm-hmm. So that's really was a kind of a frustrating thing on my part because I, I wanted to repay her, but the only way I could really repay her was to, you know, if she recommended me to, to, to live up to that recommendation and to work super hard for her because I, I respected her so much. Yeah. What a, what a service to do for someone else. You know, you think about if we can get that to be more contagious in our organizations, huh? Yeah. You know, what I was going to talk about earlier was that, you know, in business, everybody has to win. Everybody has to win the, the consumer, the seller, the service provider, the supplier, whatever, everybody has to win. And that's really what makes a great business. In my case, that was real estate um, or a mortgage company, but it also applies to police work and to a whole host of other industries. You know, you got to let your people win and you got to be happy for their successes, even though you aren't necessarily recognized as what helped that facilitate that success. But when it's all said and done, people sit back and they'll look at the overall picture and they might realize like, yeah, it was the, this leadership of this individual was what caused all that, but you should be equally happy for the success of your people. You know, it's interesting as, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about um, one of my clients in my former consulting job, they, they teach undercover work for, for the military, the defense intelligence agency, their division in there. Right. I remember having this conversation about how there's a lot of people in that world that feel like you really need to um, almost kind of dehumanize the the mark, the sources you're working with. That way you don't feel guilty lying to them. 
And I'd be interested in your thought because the guys I met with, they felt like that didn't necessarily need to be the case. Like you could recognize that it wouldn't be responsible for me to share who I am or just tell them certain things that if we were in another relationship, I would want to tell them and be more forthright because I promised my wife I was going to come home after this shift or, you know, the, the, the uh, relationship agreement I have with the LAPD is that I, I'll, they will pay me and I will go out and stop crime. And if I was to share those kind of things, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to. Um, can you talk about the nuances of, of where there's certain things that, that obviously, you know, a deception operation requires deception for, but where if you can't relate to other humans enough that, that it's probably not going to work to begin with mm, or if you see I, it different I don't, I don't know i don't know that i've encountered that on that level um a lot of times when we're working when when you're working undercover in police work you you know there's a resolution at the end right someone gets arrested or or mm. something like that where other types of operations the people you know you're covert and you don't want them to necessarily know what you're doing but they're out and they're free and they could ultimately come back and do harm to you and oh, things like good that. Point. Yeah. A lot of us, there's like, there's a resolution at the end of the day for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that I have the same perspective as that, that uh, individual. Okay. No, that's, that's valid. What about source operations? Like not necessarily somebody you're arresting, but you know, whether it's cultivating a confidential informant, something like that, where maybe in regular society, this isn't the kind of person you want your kids hanging around. But to get your job done, you know, you need to have a relationship with them so they'll be inclined to feed you information. Yeah, I mean, there's that's definitely a factor. You know, you have people that you deal with who are, you know, the underbelly of society. And this is definitely people you wouldn't go hang out with. These are not people you're going to invite to a picnic or in, you don't even want them to know where you where you live. You don't want them to know your phone number, nothing like that. But because they're in the they're under, they're part of the underbelly of society. They know the information that you need to know. So you have this, uh, strange relationship where, where you work hand in hand with them, you know, to, to bring people to justice, whether it's somebody selling, you know, trafficking minors or, you know, a big drug kingpin that's, you know, running a gigantic multi-million dollar operation with, you know, kilos of cocaine, whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting relationship that can exist for sure. Is there anything that you have told yourself over the years to to be able to work better in that kind of relationship of, of how you handled it? Well, you know what? I think you always have reservations. Um, when, not reservations. You always have your guard up is probably the best the best thing. And uh, I think what I tell myself is that although I am, I act a certain way at work, I have to compartmentalize that because that's really not the person I am in my real life. Um, being undercover is like a, being an actor. Mm-hmm. And I, I play a certain role every day at work. And then I come home and I'm a, I'm a dad and I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a person trying to do good in the community and all that. And those two worlds often collide. And you want as little as possible in the undercover realm to leak over into your personal world. And so I live life very compartmentalized when I'm working some type of undercover assignment, because if that permeates into your real life, that could be very destructive to your relationships and 
and things like that. So that's really something I've always, I've always had a standard for myself to make sure that that doesn't seep into my personal life. Yeah. Well, listen, I think we're about done here with the interview. And I think maybe a good closing question would be, um, you know, this, this issue of child trafficking, it's something that you are passionate about. You've, you spent years of your life uh, working to, to help protect more kids and get more predators off the streets. And what, what is it about, you know, there's, you've seen a lot of different crimes over your years at LAPD. What is it specifically about this crime that you decided to dedicate so much of your effort towards? You know what? I think uh, that I became so passionate because I saw there's to a large extent, there's a lot of ignorance in, in society about this type of crime. A lot of times people think, you know, oh, this person, they, they wanted to do that. They, they chose to work as a prostitute or different things like that. And my experience says quite the opposite. And so I really became passionate about it because I wanted to raise awareness among the community and I wanted to hold the, the people who would exploit, you know, women and children um, and even some cases men, you know, I wanted to hold them accountable and put them in prison and and it, the reality is I just feel great when that happens because these are people exploiting anyone that they can exploit. They don't care. They're driven by the money. They're driven by greed and the power, and they will exploit anyone's child to to obtain their ultimate desire of, you know, making money. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad for the rest of us that there's guys like you who have chosen to uh become a specialist and, and make a difference on the issue and uh and thanks for so much time for the interview today yeah thank you jess thanks for having me that was part two of our interview if you missed part one please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview as always please check icollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest and if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.